Hey everyone. For episode three, I sat down with my friend Oshan Anand in front of a tea table in his beautiful ceremonial home. He has been a practicing tea master since 2005 and has also spent seven and a half years in a federal prison. In spite of that, he is still such a zen-like individual. He actually read 350 books while in prison, can free quote copious amounts of Dostoevsky, and didn't quite play by all the rules he was supposed to during his time. I really didn't know much about the federal prison system, so this episode was really special to record and learn so much about. Around 3% of the US population has served time in prison, which is a whole lot of people in a whole lot of years. And within that world, it was so interesting to hear Ocean's experiences about how to build trust when you really need to, what happens to old friendships on the outside, and on the power of the ritual of tea on human connection. Hi, Oshan. Hello. Thanks for sitting here with me today yeah. to talk about friendship. Mm. I really like coming up the walkway and seeing or hearing, actually, the sound of you sweeping. Mm. Like, I thought it was a very, and I, and I said this to you, I thought it was a very monk-like cleaning the temple type of, mm. type of activity <laughs> to, to come upon you doing that. So I do tend to uh, be inspired to clean when people come over to my house. <laughs> <laughs> I like to use it as an excuse to like mm. clean or tidy here or there. And and I was actually going to go wait out on the front porch for you to arrive. Um, but I oh. found that it was covered in leaves. And it's like, oh, I should clean off these leaves. Well, that's a very thoughtful thing for you to, to, to do, to prepare. Yeah. Well, I also just that's like nice. using it as a motivation or pressure to, get, to do things when people come over. I do the same thing. So one of the reasons I was really excited to talk to you today is that one of the first things I learned about you when we met is that you spent seven years in a federal prison. Mm. Is that is that right? Am I yeah. saying that correctly? Mm -hmm. Seven and a half, yeah. Seven and a half years. And that is a formative years of, of your, your young life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I think that's not only a unique story to share just as, as an experience you've lived, but also about how that influences friendship and mm -hmm. how, you, how you go about that mm -hmm. and if there's anything you don't want to talk about by all means you don't have to that's mm -hmm. totally okay can you tell us about the experience of that first transition going from the life that you were used to to going into the federal prison system what was it like in terms of saying bye to friends and relationships as you, as you knew it then, mostly. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't really much time to say goodbye because I was uh, not expecting to lose my second trial. And so I had not prepared for it at all. I had mm. not emptied my business or really done anything like that. So there wasn't really, it was just suddenly I was incarcerated. And, and yes, there wasn't like a transition or preparation time. I didn't even want to acknowledge that mm. I might go to prison. And it was pretty close. I almost didn't. I almost had my second jury hung. Okay, gosh. So, okay, so you had no time to prepare to say goodbye. That was just a sudden transition. Mm -hmm. And then when you first land in a federal prison, how did you navigate getting to know people? What do you do? Yeah, well, I mean, it kind of, I started off in Oakland County Jail. Two thirds of my pod were in for murders or violent crimes. And the the uh, there's one friendship I made that was very early on. In fact, it was immediately as soon as I was taken into custody, I was put in handcuffs. I mean, as soon as they announced the verdict, they came up, put handcuffs on me and 
took me to a room wow. behind the courtroom to a holding cell. And in that holding cell, there were two other inmates in there kind of hanging out, waiting. And one of them starts talking to me, oh, what happened to you? And I was like, oh, I just lost a trial and looking at, you know, 10 plus years in prison. And, mm. and um, he said, well, you seem in an awfully good mood considering. And I said, well, I'm a pretty spiritual person. I'm just trying to look at, you yeah. know, how I can get the most from this experience and, wow. and so on. And he said, oh, I'm pretty spiritual too. Like he had become born again uh, in the several months of his incarceration. And mm -hmm. he was actually had a Bible in his hand. He held it up and... And I'm inspired by many traditions, but I, I'm not aligned with any of them. But I just really appreciated the spirit that he brought to his newfound sort of religion, and and the and we had just sort of a, this sort of spiritual connection, or just this nice sort of connection briefly there in the holding cell behind. Wait, how long were you in there that that you made? Uh, we were in there like an hour or so before then we were loaded up into a van to go back to the jail to where he had already been and he was just mm. coming over for a court appearance and then going back whereas I was going gotcha. there to start and to await sentencing and so on. We got transported back to the jail and separated and he ended up in his cell and I, I got processed, take hours and they leave you and you get left in, in it's one thing that really is hard is just not knowing how long, you know, you're gonna mm. be somewhere. And there's a lot of time for this, leave you in some holding cell. Yeah. And so, but yeah. gradually, eventually they processed me and brought me to my cell and it was his cell. He oh. happened to turn out to be my bunkie. And so we had a really great connection and he'd done time before and he was trying to show me the ropes and kind of t tell me how to be in there. And What were some of the valuable lessons that he shared with you? There's a lot of just around communication and signifying and and just sort of the, the ethics of being an inmate and how to interact with inmates and the, the, the protocols and the politics and, and stuff like that as a whole. Yeah. It's a whole university course right there. But eventually we we kept talking and I mentioned my tea house and he said, oh yeah, I think I was like, I was outside that once. Like I was hanging out right on that corner. And just for the audience, you, you had been running a tea house prior to going to. Yeah. So I had an organic health food restaurant tea house for yeah. three and a half years, yeah. uh, full service, organic health food restaurant, old world style tea house, all like antique Asian Moroccan and decor. I had a weekly belly dance night, a weekly poetry night. It was a very, it was a cultural center of yeah, San it was Francisco. Like community, yeah. And he, he said, oh yeah, I remember being outside. And it suddenly, it clicked. So my block was actually the site of a gang war in San Francisco. And there were three shootings in front of my tea house within about six months or so. Okay. So anyway, they were there. I think they were kind of pushing up on the other, you know, they were there sort of politically of their gang, you know? Like, yeah. So me and my naive hippie friends had joked many times about how oh, we just need to get the gangs to sit down over tea and work things out, you know, mm. this, like naive sort of thing. And, and my friend who was a regular in my tea house, she went outside to talk to them to try and get them to come in the tea house. Oh, Part of that whole like idea. And they're like, I think when she first asked them if they wanted to come in for tea, they, they, they said something about not being gay or something like that. But, <laughs> <laughs> Regardless, they didn't come in for tea, but I went out and actually shook this guy's hand that she was talking to. The next day, that guy was arrested at a hospital with a gunshot wound. And so this was the day after that I met this guy in front of my tea house. He gets arrested. And that's the guy whose cell I ended up 
with was this. who became a born again Christian and and who was kind of wow. looking out for me and like yeah and he was formerly in this gang yeah and got arrested wow. the day after I met him like <laughs> I've been in there for months since like before Threads I ended of up the in universe. the cell yeah okay so. and he ended up looking out for me like I later transferred to another cell and I had a bunkie who was I genuinely was concerned he might try and kill me in my sleep or something it's probably more than I ever did in my whole time there were a few bunkies I was worried about but he was the one the most and and this other guy you know I mentioned to him hey I'm my new bunkie's kind of giving me a hard time and and one day at breakfast he just turns to the other he just goes to the other guy he's like hey Hey, you know I was Ocean's bunkie for a while. And he just kind of like stares the guys down and like, that's it. We go back to the cell and it's like, what? Did you put that guy against me? But uh, I think I liked to know that I had someone who had my back. But and I had, a I had a lot of instances like that during the time I was incarcerated where I didn't really realize it, but people were kind of looking out for me in a way that I didn't, so. That's, that's very sweet in, in many ways. How long did it take you to feel like you really trust the first Bunky who you had incidentally met outside your tea shop? When did you feel like you started to trust him and that you considered him a friend? Pretty early on, I think. Yeah. It's, mm. hard, it's hard to say. Yeah, I think in prison, there's a number of levels of trust. You know, there's people you can trust your friend. There's people you can trust not to snitch, you know, to tell the authorities, you know, what other people are doing. Because inevitably, mm -hmm. every single inmate I've ever met is breaking some rule in prison. Yeah. You could bring some leftover cake back from the chow hall that you were too full to finish. You wanted to finish later, and that's a violation. So how did you figure out? So you have you have your first you have your first friend, your first bunkie. Mm -hmm. How did you make other friends? Yeah, I kept myself pretty busy in there. So you know, sometimes you just make friends with your bunkie. It's someone you've got to you've got you're in a very small space with them. You kind of have to become friends with them. It's just not pleasant to live with someone you're not becoming friends with or developing closeness with when you're 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 yeah. literally in such small constrained space all the time. And that's an interesting one because then if you're with like somebody for that period of time. It's, it's, it's a skill to say you're going to become friends with them no matter what, because sometimes you could, be, you could just be like, we don't get along. That's and that hard. did happen sometimes, how, you know. But how do you make sure that you, you become friends with somebody in that intimate, very <laughs> unique space that you have? Yeah, I think it's just about uh, respect, like just respecting the other person and respecting mm -hmm. their space and showing that you've got their back, you know, that you're going to look out for them and their interests and, and their and that How would that look? Like, for example, it's count time. You've got to be up and standing up for most mm. counts. And like, you know, if your bunkie's laying down, you want to make sure that they're going to make it to that count. You're just looking out for them in various ways to make yeah. sure that they don't get in trouble. And then, you know, like if I had extra food in the chow hall, I would probably tend to, you know, rather than give it to some random person, sometimes I'd give it to my bunkie. And it's funny, bunky becomes this very affectionate term in prison, kind of. Like, when you're living in the same space with someone, it's like, you're bunky. There's, like, an alliance you have with the person that you share a bunk with. Like, not always. Sometimes you just really don't get along and don't like each other or respect each other. What does that look like, to really be able to respect someone in that small, intimate space? I mean, there's so much that being in a small space with someone is that... You have to think about smells and, mm. you know, cleanliness. And, and so part of it is just respecting the fact you're both using that space and that you're both trying to keep it in the best condition for each other and to yeah. minimize the amount of sounds and smells mm. and other things that might disturb just the regular living yeah. of life in there. Okay. So 
During this time that you're in prison, do you still are you still in contact with any of your friends from outside? In the federal system, you get 300 phone minutes per month, which mm. averages out to about 10 minutes per day. That wasn't too bad of a problem for me. I mean, I wish that I'd had a lot more phone time, but I'm not a big phone person. And, but I saw that for people who had families and mm. kids to talk to, they want to talk to their kids, their wife, maybe some other friends, business associates. The 10 minutes per day was like a really rough for them yeah. to, to do that, especially since they found that one of the few things that reduces recidivism is actually inmates having a connection with their community. Mm. Despite the fact that that's the case, they do all these things to sort of limit contact yeah. with community. Yeah. What did you do with, with those minutes and the people you kept in touch with? I, I spent a lot of time trying to call people and frequently take me at least like 15 rings calling like a bunch of different people multiple times before I could get people on the phone. Because mm. while I was in prison, there was a trend where people stopped answering phone calls and everyone's doing text-based stuff and texting. Sure. And there's no way to text someone like, are you free for a call in five yeah. minutes? So I'm just cold calling. People. How did you even get their phone number? I had communications going on. I had my okay. brother maintaining my Facebook and posting oh, updates okay. about my case. I had hundreds, if not thousands of people following my case. I had over 100 people visit me in prison. And I, one of my prisons, I had over 100 email contacts. And then I went to another prison and they limit your email contacts to 30. So you can only have 30 at a time. What was it like when friends would visit you in prison? It was nice. It was like the, you know, it was something that really kept me going. During times where I wasn't getting visits, like uh, there was t several times where I went six weeks or so without a visit were oh, wow. really hard. Like that just started to feel sort of abandoned or, you know, that the world had forgotten about me. Or, so it like definitely nourished me to have friends visit me in prison. And Did you have to uh, seek that out to make that happen? Like tell people that, hey, visit me? Yeah, a little bit. I had like people, you know, posting on Facebook, hey, Oshan really needs visits. You know, he hasn't had a visit in a while. You know, this is the process for how you can yeah. apply and be approved. And that's a whole process that intimidated people. Plus I was, even when I was closest to the Bay, I was five and a half hours away or five hours away. So oh, it's wow. not quite enough time for people. Most of my friends live in the Bay Area. It's not like a day trip. They'd have to like go out there and get a hotel overnight or something. So what would this visit be like? It's such a, it's a journey for the other person. It's obviously very special for you. What would you do during this? Like how much time did you have together and how do you make the most of that. Yeah, time. potentially we could have hours. I usually told people not to bother visiting me if it was going to be less than two hours because it just doesn't feel like uh, enough time. You know, even people who would visit, they would say, oh, well, that went by really fast and we barely got yeah. a chance to catch up. So we would just hang out, chat. I would talk about things I was up to in there and projects I was working on. And they would tell me about things in the world and the way the world is. And sometimes we would play a board game or something. They had some board games in there, but um, mostly just hanging out and talking. And visits there were a lot, visits at my last two prisons were a lot more laid back. It's just a big open hall and you're sitting at tables with people and it's not super regulated. But at the first two places I was at, it was much more rigid. Once you, the first place you were behind glass, and then the second place you had to like sit several feet across from the people. and. And um, it's just a lot more, right? You can stand up or move around without permission. And That's a really people. interesting filter. Like the people who would like visit you in spite of that. Like how many, like, what did it tell you about 
your friends and who are yeah I mean I had a lot of close friends and, and contacts who I'd never heard from at all or who mm -hmm. didn't come to visit me and and then I had people I barely knew who I'd met once or twice who like oh. he heard about my case and decided to start coming visit me and so I made new friends that way while I was in there you mentioned being very spiritual very very zen how did that feel when Close friends didn't show up, but some other ones did. Like, how did you take all that in? It was hurtful, the ones that didn't. It definitely hurt my feelings. And, and there was just a lot of people I expected that I might only see them one time during seven and a half years that I mm. never saw or heard from. And so that was surprising. Yeah, it really, I guess it showed me something about who was really friends. And what do you think it was about the people who showed up? Like, what is it a certain trade is just what, what was it one thing I've noticed is that people who'd been through hardships themselves were more sympathetic and more mm. wanting to help like the people who'd had easier lives were less there for me but I was having people reach out to me even including strangers I would have sometimes write me a letter or something I'm getting a lot of mail in there including from people I didn't know or people who are just customers of my tea house or you know I had I don't remember them, but they're like, oh, you did this thing and it changed my life. And now I've been on this tea path and I've been doing all this stuff. I get these letters all the time. When you bring up the letters, which is, is interesting because the letters do not take a five and a half hour drive to do. Mm -hmm. Like, it seems like anybody could send you a letter. Mm -hmm. Close friends could send mm -hmm. you a letter. But you had some friends who didn't, didn't even yeah. do that. Mm -hmm. Or who waited years into my sentence before I first heard from them. So yeah, there was one friend who had been kind of like my main assistant during a lot of festivals and stuff. Mm -hmm. And who when my tea house closed, he like opened another tea house to kind of replace it. Mm. And I was really shocked that for three and a half years, I never saw him. Like he just or heard from him, especially considering he had carried on this project, sort of, or you know, the things that I was doing or that he'd learned from me. He finally came to visit me three and a half years in, and I was a little <laughs> grumpy with him. Okay. Just like, oh yeah, he finally made a buy, great. I was not that. And then he said, yeah, I'll come again soon. And I said, great, I'll see you again in three and a half years or something. And he never came to visit me again after that. But I also just thought, I, I guess I thought he owed it to me to kind of mm. stay in contact. You know, of course he doesn't owe it to me, but I, I, it was pretty hurtful that there yeah. was just like such little contact. Do you think you've forgiven those people now? Yes, yeah. But I've forgiven them, but it's just like I know who they are and whether they're going to be there for me. So mm. I just don't consider them as close of a friend as I did before, I think. Yeah. But the fact that you can st still consider them a friend at all is still, that's such yeah. a lot. No, I still have yeah. a good rapport with the person. You mentioned there's like the friends you could trust, the friends you could trust not to snitch. How did those broader circles of friends change and evolve? Did you try and make friends with people? Or? People gave me some advice when I, before I went to prison. They said, yeah, just kind of keep your head down and only like be very slow to de develop relationships with people because you don't know, if, you know who you can trust or who you'll be associated with if you're friends with those people mm -hmm. or you know there's all this stuff you have to bear in mind in prison so you have to bear in mind who you're friends with and what their reputation is because it's going to affect your reputation so if i hang out with someone who's a known snitch all the time people will start to assume i'm a snitch or something like that these yeah. are a lot of added layers to friendship that are so complicated because they'll have like real detrimental impact on you yeah 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a whole different thing. So with all of that in mind, did you keep your head down? Did you go? No, no. So I completely ignored all that advice because I'm a <laughs> okay. stubborn person and I'm very social and I'm a super connector. Yeah. And I always just end up knowing everybody. So in prison, I knew everybody. Like I knew a lot of people. And I made a number of enemies because of that, you know, just by interacting with so many people. And I made a lot of friends and a lot of friends, very diverse friends, you know, because a lot of people sort of keep their racial group a little bit. Partially, you're almost forced to. Once you get to higher security levels, you're like literally not allowed to interact with certain races. I was mostly at lower security places most of the time where those divisions are not as strict. Once you get to higher security places, like you can not even yeah. allowed to talk to certain racial groups or interact with them in any way. You definitely can't share food with them or go in their cell. Right. Yeah. Like what did, what did you do? So I definitely felt a pressure to kind of align or interact with or support people of your own racial group. I really hate that. Like, I really don't like segregation at all. And yeah. I, I had friends in all the different groups and, and mostly kind of ignored that directive. But it's just something you have to bear in mind when making friendships and alliances is, is yeah. all the sort of segregation and racial dynamics. And How would you get people to trust you? So I have had what's called good paperwork. I have evidence that I didn't cooperate in my legal case. When you say don't cooperate, what is actually what Oh, so that cooperate mean? means to assist the federal government in prosecuting other people. Uh. So, aka to snitch or to basically to turn in, I was not responsible for anyone else going to prison. Mm. Despite the fact I could have got a much lower sentence if I did, like I could have potentially walked free with the information I know, but I didn't do that and people knew that and people knew I got a really long sentence because of it and so people respected and trusted me based on that. Usually I had a good rapport with most of the representatives of the various groups who knew that I was you know, not a collaborator. Not a collaborator. (laughs) Yeah, and you mentioned being a super connector. Yeah. What is it like being a super connector in prison? Yeah, I mean, I just knew everybody and I was, you know, working on a lot of projects, so it was useful. And so I taught a lot of classes in prison. I led a Tony Robbins class just because I found some DVDs and they inspired good good discussions. And mm. I helped co-teach a culinary arts class, even though I don't have a ton of expertise in that. I did run a restaurant. And then I taught uh, a restaurant entrepreneurship class multiple times. There were a lot of guys in prison who wanted to, say, start food trucks or restaurants when they got out. So I would just tell them all of the stuff they needed to know. And- and so, then sometimes I would bring in other people who are restaurant owners who are, you know, locked up who would help me co-teach the class. That sounds like a very super connector thing to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you ever broker like friendships or help people get along with bunkies or I don't know, how smooth that over? Probably a bit. Yeah, I don't know. I definitely always like to introduce people to people. So yeah, I definitely did a lot of like networking or like, <laughs> oh, you should meet this other guy in the prison who's also, you know, uh, oh into gosh. real estate. You guys would want to talk about the same thing. Or... Did you introduce me? Did you, like people helped you get off the ground? Did you help others? I think one of the things I was most impressed by when I first arrived in prison was how much everyone looked out for each other and how generous everyone was being. It was really inspiring that despite being in the hardest situation, that the the, the strength of the human spirit and, and people trying to, you know, help each other and, and whether it was, you know, giving you stuff when you first arrived. Oh, hey, do you need some toothpaste or whatever it was or people giving the new people a tour around the prison or just trying to help out or answer any questions. There was a lot of that just very the spirit of like helpfulness and we're all trying to lift each other up. 
I think people really want to help a lot of the time. A lot of yeah. a lot of people and want and and. It's almost and, like that's all you have. Like you're in a place where everything else, your humanity, your ability, your freedom is stripped away, and all you have is each other. Mm -hmm. Is that community mm -hmm. that that you build up? Mm -hmm. I taught a class on how to write poetry multiple times, and then I taught a class on, and there was a lot of great poetry that the inmates wrote. Some pretty amazing po yeah. poetry that came amazing. out of those classes. And then I taught a class on mysticism through poetry six times to over a hundred inmates. And I developed a lot of close friends to through that because huh. it was a very intimate space of yeah. we would take turns reading the poems aloud and we'd talk about how they made us feel mm. and I would give spiritual historical context and yeah. interpret the poems through the unique metaphorical systems that were being used and biographies of the poets. Yeah. But I think it, it just brought a lot of closeness because it was an intimate space that people felt very safe and comfortable in. It was a very spiritual kind of loving space. So, and then I was also the ceremonial leader of the Native Sweat Lodge for two years of my sentence, which was another space that was just very intimate. I mean, we were mostly naked in the darkness together, singing and saying prayers. It's amazing you so, do that in prison. Yeah, and so wow. people really open up in there in the darkness. Wow. And, and so those are the strongest friends that I made in prison was the ones I was in the sweat lodge with because wow. that was just the deepest level of intimacy you could get in prison. Were you sad to leave those people? I was that some of them had to stay in there when I was leaving, yeah. And I hope to, you know, reconnect, you know, build friendships with dozens of people I met in prison. But right, because you're not allowed to. It's stay yeah, in touch. it's it's Just forbidden tragic. for me to. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny because some people like people who spend 20 years in prison, like all their family died while they're in prison, all their friends forgot about them, and the only network they have of friendship is the people they met in prison, mm. and they're not allowed to connect with them for years after getting out. So, and then the punishment is if you do associate with felons, we're going to put you in a place where there's only felons, which just seems an absurd solution yeah. to the problem. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So you already mentioned like the greatest lesson about human character. Mm. What do you think was the greatest lesson about friendship specifically that you learned through your time there? That's a difficult question to answer. <laughs> <laughs> or just a lesson. Doesn't yeah. have to be the greatest one. One thing in, in prison, you know, that was important to friendships uh, and is part of sort of prison culture is, is uplifting each other. Mm -hmm. And so like encouraging other people to work out or to better themselves in different ways. Yeah. Like, so that was something I appreciated about some of the friendships in there is, is that they were about holding each other accountable, helping each other do better and inspiring each other, you know, in yeah. that way. So I think that was pretty powerful. That's awesome. Moving on from your time in that system, getting back into the world and rebuilding, let's say rebuilding the friendships that you have now. And actually it's somewhat recent, you've been out for two years, three mm. maybe. Mm -hmm. So it's, it seems like a short period of time to me. Mm. What was that like for you rebuilding and remaking friendships? Yeah, I think I, I've always been a super connector. I know everybody. And I was really thought that after seven and a half years away and then two years of pandemic that almost 10 years that like I wouldn't have that network or that community anymore. And I was really shocked to find out that was not the case at all, that I have this massively extensive network still and including a lot of people really looking out for me and trying to help and trying mm -hmm. to get me gigs or to be of assistance in various ways for me to get back on my feet. And so that that was really powerful. But I also feel like, I mean, in prison, like, I think I had some deeper friendships because you have so much time to hang out all the time and to do different activities together, to play tennis together, to play cards together, to 
do you know to really connect with people and out here i don't find i have a lot there's hours and hours of time to spend with friends so that i don't think i almost get the same level of uh, do you ever try um, to bring any of those lessons over or any of those learnings to be like hey here's here's how we did it in prison <laughs> yeah i don't know i mean a lot of that is just about time and yeah but i've i've found that i as far as my personal friendship that i have had a tendency towards quantity over quality with my friendship that i don't um yeah i don't feel like i have a ton of really close friends or or i do have just a lot of very close friends but i just feel like i know so many people and i'm interacting yeah. with so many people all the time but that a lot of those friendships don't go to very deep levels. Another difference than in maybe a medicine of prison is that most of my friends tend to be women, whereas in prison I was only around men. So it was a good balance because I needed to learn how to develop friendships with men better, I yeah. think. Actually, one of the subjects you had even mentioned, like wanting to, to talk about, because your life right now is it's quite different. I mean, you're you're a tea master, self-described tea master. I've seen you bring tea ceremonies to different events. We have a beautiful tea set in front of us right now, and I'm wondering if you want to talk a bit about tea ceremonies or any kind of ritual and the impact that has on on friendship. Yeah, so I just I got into tea in 2005, I believe, and was immediately struck by the way that it. It cultivated connection between people. I was seeing a Chinese healer and he integrated into his healing practice. And I just saw that when people talked around the tea table, they tended to just drop into a much more authentic way of relating. And to talk about more meaningful stuff too, I felt like the dialogue has elevated around the tea table. It's less small talk and it's more people just feel inspired to talk about things that are more meaningful, whether it's spirituality or psychology or whatever, people like, tend to bring the conversation to a higher level. I don't know you don't what know about the, the ceremony. You know, just maybe it's just the, the mindfulness that it brings puts you in a state where you are considering the more important things in, in life. But uh, yeah, I was just really struck by the way it cultivated friendship and connection. And that was a big uh, motivation for me doing it. I think it helped me also because of my struggles to connect with people through traumatic youth and then through excessive marijuana use like i just had difficulty connecting with people like at events and in in situations like that so the tea was a great medium for me to be able to connect with people because yeah. it gave me something to talk about and it also helped me to center and ground myself in the experience you know, like it's very easy if you're at a bar or somewhere else, you know, in different social situations to just kind of disengage. But something about the tea ceremony keeps you anchored into the present moment with the other person and keeps that connection going. That's a great way to describe it. But I found useful to me to, to overcome that. I found it useful too. I, um, one time you very kindly let me operate your tea table with various people coming in at an event. And it gives you a sense of, a purpose and and right to be there. Mm. Right? I think often we have some kind of imposter-like syndrome. Mm. I don't. Maybe I don't belong at this event, mm. or I don't belong at this party, or I'm feeling socially anxious. Whatever, whatever it is. But having the tea there mm -hmm. is grounding. Your purpose there, at at its very least, if if you do nothing else, is to serve tea. Mm -hmm. And you get different people coming in and out, and you're you're the host, and you get to play that role, and you get to provide this service, this gift for people, and that felt so calming mm. it felt so easy mm -hmm. it was mm -hmm. it was really it was really such a it's such a fun experience to be able to to, to do mm -hmm. 
And I, it's interesting because I kept wishing that I could have that in prison because I would. The main way people do that in prison is around cards. People playing cards together. Oh. It's something to do. We can all sit around and talk, but we're doing something. So it was. And I kept looking at people playing cards and be like, if only there was a tea tray there, they would. People would have loved it. People would have got really into it and would have loved to drink, yeah. sit and drink tea with each other. It would have been something to do. But a lot of times, so. it's just cards is the way that people do that. And if there's something, so it's both people in a circle. There's some mm -hmm. kind of device there that's mm -hmm. keeping you focused. It's, but it's someone's it's turn, or you know, you're each yeah. kind of participating in it regularly. And... That was so interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Mm. Well. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all of that about prisons and just human experience as well as as well as tea. So we're getting close to the close mm. and I'd love to switch to what I call the lightning round or we mm. just kind of rapid fire answer a bunch of questions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you ready? Yeah. Okay, great. Who was your first friend? I moved around a lot as a child and was everywhere a very short time. So I don't remember early friends because they were short lived. The first one was a guy named Sean Kirschbaum. You still friends? No, he, he is no longer with us. Mm. What's a gift you recall receiving from a friend? I have a white Tara painting that my friend Samantha gave me. Or a white what painting? A uh, white Tara is one of the Himalayan oh, sort of beautiful. bodhisattvas or like deities. Amazing. Was a gift you remember giving a friend? I like giving gifts. I used to go to parties a lot and just hand out chocolate. And mm. um, I had a friend in prison who had done 16 years for a nonviolent crime, and literally all his family had died by the time he got out. And he had one friend left in the bay who moved away right before he got out. And so he was literally getting out to no support network at all. And so I contacted a friend and, and basically lined up a job for him and got him a job when he got out. So that's the gift that I gave him yeah. to help him get a job when he got out of prison. That's an amazing gift. Yeah. I'm so glad you thought of that as yeah. a gift to give. Did you learn anything about yourself through this conversation? Yeah. This, I don't know. This, uh, it's an ongoing conversation I'm having with myself about friendship and about, because mm. I often, I don't feel like I have a lot of close friends, even though I'm sure I, you know, a lot of my friends would think of themselves as close friends. For me, it's just like, I think I find it hard to trust people fully. And, and I guess I don't make time for a lot of male friendships is something that I'm, you know, has been an ongoing thing for me that I think it's partially because I grew up with a single mother mostly and my dad wasn't around much. This conversation is just reminding me that I do want to have strong, deep relationships with men. And mm. so to sort of call that in more and to create that in my life more. That's lovely. Is there any other thing you'd like to say about friendship? I think the part about holding friends accountable and helping each other do better is, is really important. And, and also just to, to balance loyalty with holding people accountable is, is, is something that I think is important. I feel like in our modern society, there's not as much of that in friendship as maybe there used to be of that growing together and, and really like calling each other to be better people or to be stronger. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's really important that we're all constantly uplifting each other. And because that also uplifts us, you know, yeah. the more our community is doing well. But I also struggle. That's both, you know, there's a shadow to that, which is, is not just accepting people for who they are and where they're at and what they're capable of. So finding that balance that acknowledges that yeah. and inspires people to, to do better.
Awesome. Well, I'm going to end with a hug. Yeah. <laughs> it's so nice to chat with you. Thank you for sharing yeah. everything that you did. Thank you. And that's episode three. Kind of intense and heavy in some parts, but really enlightening. I loved hearing about bunkies, the deep camaraderie of helping one another out, and how you really needed to rely on friends in order to survive. Oh, Sean, hats off to you for approaching it with such zen and curiosity and for being willing to share your experiences. It is always a pleasure to sit with you at your tea table. And I hope you, the listeners, enjoyed your time with us as well. If you rate and subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or Apple, I will give you a cookie because that's what friends do. <laughs>